Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, teaching pastor Steve Carter's message is The Thing Beneath the Thing, which is also the title of his new book. Here's Steve. I think about a simple verse that Lauren quoted, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus saying these words, you will have trouble. Now there's this, when this word trouble is being used, um, and this, this isn't, wasn't in my message notes, so bear with me, I just hearing Lauren say this just really triggered this, is the sense of there's going to be trouble that's outside you. Right? There's going to be trouble that happens, whether from systems and structures of injustice or oppression. There's going to be troubles that are outside you, whether with violence or sin or even just the waves and the storms. Growing up in Southern California, fires or earthquakes. You will have the troubles that are outside you, but take heart, for Christ has overcome the world. That there's something redemptive still possible, even in the midst of the uncertainty and the unknown. But today what I want to do is, I want to ask ourselves a bigger question. Because sometimes I think we can read that verse, we have trouble in this world, but, but Jesus isn't saying, hey, just go uh, cause a whole bunch of trouble. Like, don't just like, he's talking about trouble that's happening outside you. He's like, don't be a part of the trouble. Now, John Lewis would say there's good trouble, which I agree with, but I'm talking about the kind of trouble where brokenness that you perpetuate. And, and I, I really want to talk about this today. Because if you're like me, do you ever wonder why people do what they do? Like, why did she tweet that? Why did he say that? Why did he kind of gossip about that? And there's one passage in Scripture for the last four years. I have just been so moved by it. And maybe it's just because I sit with people as pastors. Maybe it's just because I, I, I've just wanted to understand that bigger question, why we do what we do, or more importantly, why I do what I do. But in Romans seven fifteen, Paul offers up two sentences. And the first sentence is simple. I do not understand what I do. Now, I like to quote the scripture. I love memorizing scripture. It's a helpful tool for me. But I'll tell you what, when I do something that's not very wise, and I've tried to quote this text to my wife, it doesn't work. <laughs> Babe, Paul said, I do not understand what I do. And I get it, because I don't understand what I do. And she's like, well, start understanding. <laughs> and I think we all can then relate with the second sentence, the good I want to do, I just don't do. But the thing I hate, I do. See, there is this potential for good there is this potential for health and wholeness. There is this, this potential for every one of us to be set apart. But somehow, if you're like me, oftentimes it feels like it's out there just a little too far. But what's right in front of me is the thing I hate. For some apparent reason, I, just like Paul, for many, many years, have chosen the things I hate. To gossip to get prideful, to run to something other than God. And I, I found myself as pastoring for 20 years. Nobody's ever come into my office and said, Steve, today's the day. Today's the day I'm going to train wreck my life. 
Today's the day I'm going to self-sabotage all the good that God has given me. Today's the day I'm going to decimate every important relationship in my life. Today's the day I'm going to annihilate my integrity once and for all. Never happened. Nobody's ever said those words to me, but why? Why is it that little by little, choice by choice, decision by decision, stuff that comes out of our mouth, from our heart, from our life... We can so easily relate to what Paul's saying. Why do I do what I do? And this has been kind of this process of me just trying to research the human experience over the last number of years, trying to answer this. And so to do this even more, I want to teach you through Esther chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter 3. If you have a little black Bible like Chad Burgess and I do, it's page 399. If you don't, I can't help you. But we're going to start in verse 1. Actually, let's go backwards. Let's start in verse 15. Let's work our way backwards. And I want to start with the last sentence. The last sentence, chapter 3, verse 15, it says this. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. (laughs) This is a fascinating way to end a chapter. The king, whose name is Xerxes, the most powerful person at that time, and his right-hand man, Hamilton reference, Haman, they sit down to have a drink. I don't know what they're drinking. Maybe bourbon, maybe coffee, maybe tea, maybe wine. I have no idea. But what I do know is that the entire city of Susa is bewildered. Now, the word bewildered in Hebrew is the word book. Let me hear you say book. Yeah, you got to put a little into it. You can do it. Put a little into it. And here's the thing. The word book literally means this, to walk around aimlessly wondering what is going on. And you probably all felt that when you saw the Kabul airport. And you saw people like holding on as a plane was taking off. And literally holding on, plane is up in the air and you're just sitting there going, what must it be like? For someone to actually think this is my best way out. And watching the footage of people falling from the wings of an airplane thousands of feet up in the air. And if you were like me, you're just walking around going, what is going on? And this is what the entire city of Susa is like. But the question is why? The king and his right-hand man are just sitting down for a drink. But while they're doing this, the entire city is bewildered. You all know what this is like. You've come home from the marketplace. You've come home from a meeting. You've come home from a family gathering. And you've been like, what was she thinking? Why is he like that? Why did the boss make that decision? And the boss or the family member or the friend, they're just sitting down having a drink in the living room, unaware of how much it has affected you. And... I guarantee you there's moments where you and your spouse have sat down in the living room or the dining room or down in the basement while your kids are upstairs in their bedroom wondering, what were they thinking? Why did they make that decision? Why did they make that rule? Why did they, why did they lash out at each other? Why did he say that to her? Why did she say that to him? 
The truth is, every day, the decisions and the choices that we make can actually invite people to actually want to discover more of who God is, or it can wildly bewilder them. But the question is, why are they so bewildered? Go up to verse 13, look what it says. Dispatches, this is why the city of Susa is bewildered. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So the question is, why? Why? Because a massive genocide had been decreed. I don't know if you've ever seen the effects of a massive genocide. A number of years ago, I happened to be in Rwanda, and it was a couple years after, in a hundred days, where two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, went after each other, and the UN records that in less than a hundred days, 800,000 to a million people were slaughtered. And what's wild is missionaries in the 90s had come back from Africa proclaiming that we could reach Africa for Christ. Because 90% of the people in Rwanda proclaimed Jesus until they had to have a conversation with their neighbor. And if you go to Kigali today, you'll, walk, you'll see people walking with missed limbs and just with one leg. Effects. But what they began to realize is that people were more, had more allegiance to their tribe first and foremost than to Christ. And sometimes that hits us here in America. We have more allegiance to our political party. We have more allegiance to our rights. We have more allegiance to this than we actually do to the kingdom of God. And what the invitation for each of us have to, to really wrestle with is, man, why do I do what I do? So the question becomes, well, how do you pull off a genocide? How, how do you actually make this happen? Go to verse 8. Look what it says. Then Haman, again, the right-hand man to the king, said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Let me stop right there. It's fascinating that Haman uses the word tolerate. King Xerxes' grandfather was probably known as the greatest king of all time. Cyrus the Great, at least in the Hebrew scriptures. Cyrus the Great was, a, was not a believer. But if you're familiar with Cyrus the Great, you will know that there was a prophecy written about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45. And they called Cyrus the anointed one, which in Hebrew is the word Messiah. And this story was that someday Cyrus the Great was actually, even though he did not know who God was, was going to set the Hebrew people free. So the Hebrew people find themselves in exile in bondage in Babylon. And one day, Cyrus, who's led this control, the Persian army to take over Babylon, is shown a scroll, the scholars say, of what was written in Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. And the scriptures say that like Cyrus sees it and basically sets the people free. And he actually pays for the Hebrew people to go back to J-Town, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And what's amazing is that the UN, if you don't think like Cyrus is a big deal, and the UN building, before countries go to war, they have to pass by the cylinder, which was known as the first declaration of human rights, where Cyrus actually declares that he's setting these Jewish people free. 
Cyrus was known as a tolerant king. And I'm not talking about tolerance the way that its culture uses it today, but the kind of tolerance where Cyrus, when he would go into a different country, he wouldn't rape and pillage the land like most leaders would do. What he would do is he would look for the gifted and the skills and the talents, and he would invite those people to join his cabinet. When you, if you, if you don't think this has actually affected America, let me tell you this. The founding fathers were raised on two books outside of the Bible. One of those books was written about Cyrus the Great. And the person who was most fascinated by Cyrus the Great was Thomas Jefferson. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, you can actually, and if you love the Constitution like I do, you will understand that the Declaration of Independence was actually influenced by Cyrus the Great, who was actually a picture of what tolerance looked like. And now the right-hand man of the king is now saying to King Xerxes, hey, forget what your grandfather said. These people are different. They think differently. They live differently. They have different customs than you. You have no reason to tolerate them. Your grandfather would not have tolerated them. Continues on, and he says this. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. And then the king just simply says this, keep the money. Do as you please. Keep the money. Do as you please. I think it's just fascinating. That this man, the right-hand man of the king, King Haman, or Haman, said, hey, I'll actually bankroll it. I can't stand these people so much, I'll actually bankroll a genocide. I, I, I don't know how that hits you, but sometimes, again, I'm like, why would this guy be so moved to actually want to bankroll a decree to kill, annihilate, and decimate every Jewish person who lived on the planet? Which takes me to the city of Chicago. I don't know how many of you grew up outside of Illinois, show of hands, outside of Illinois that you grew up. All right, you all love to, to move to high taxes and you came here, welcome. We love that. I came from California to Illinois and so it was like high taxes to, to high taxes and it was great. But one thing that nobody prepared me for, when I got to the city of Chicago in 2012, I remember driving and I, I remember just going, what are these things in the road? These massive, massive craters. I mean, they're everywhere. These potholes. I mean, they're just everywhere. And I'm like, what? This is not the way it is. Like, everything is in California had to be earthquake protected. Like, we didn't have potholes. Like, you all have them. And I remember just driving one day in the city of Chicago when I hit a pothole, and right away I knew I had a flat tire in my, my, my right front. And I was frustrated, so I pulled the car over, and I'm like, come on. And I get out, and I could just hear the and I'm just sinning in my brain because I'm frustrated and I had places to go. And then I remembered hearing that you could dial a number, 311. And if you called 311, you could report a pothole. And if the pothole had been reported in the city of Chicago and had not fixed it in due time, they would pay for your damages. Which no wonder the city of Chicago is going bankrupt, but that's another sermon. <laughs> so I call 311, I report this pothole, and, the, and the, I, I start thinking to myself, this woman who just picked up works for the city of Chicago, and there's a number that I can dial to report potholes. 411 was information when I was a kid. 911 was to help people um, that were hurting, and you can call the police. 311 potholes, this is incredible. So I'm like, hey man, how many potholes? Like you got your own number. 
You're a big deal. How many potholes have you filled in? She goes, well, it's fascinating. Chicago Tribune just did a story on us. And I was like, wow, do tell. She said, January 1st, 2018 to March 21st, 2018. Do you know how many potholes we filled in? I said, no, I didn't read the article. She says, take a guess. I say, 25,000. She says, a little bit more. I say, 35,000. She says, a little bit more. I say, 45,000. She says, a little bit more. I said, ma'am, you're like my father. You're asking me questions that you already know the answer to. Just tell me the answer. So she comes to tell me that there is 108,000 potholes in a less than 100 days. Now, no joke. If you go to the city of Chicago's website, they have a pothole tracker where they literally show their work. This is insane to me. But the crazy piece about this is, is what you would have as a city of Chicago employee walk up to this pothole, and oftentimes potholes are caused because water freezes and like the, the asphalt doesn't have the elasticity of my sweatpants, and so it just expands, and there's a crater in the ground. And so they walk up to it, they see it, and they go, oh, that's cool. We just add a little asphalt, check the, check the pothole tracker, let's move on, and we got 107,999 more to go. But sometimes they come up to a pothole, and they look at it, and they go, this wasn't caused by inclement weather, there's actually something underneath the surface. It could be a leaky sewage pipe, it could be some form of erosion, but until we deal with the thing beneath the thing, this pothole could quickly become a sinkhole. And what's amazing is that in 2017, there was a man, 72-year-old man, driving in the city of Chicago, had the ride of his life when the road actually gave out. Millions of dollars of damage. He dropped two stories basically into the ground. He ended up being rescued, but millions of dollars of damage. Why do I say this? Because the truth is, every one of us has potholes. And those potholes are from our past. Those potholes are from trauma. Those potholes are from lies that people have spoken into us. Those potholes are from decisions and choices that we've made. And until we have the courage to actually deal with them, those potholes can become sinkholes that don't just affect you, but affect every relationship around you. And this is, this is what I found to be so fascinating, is most sincere Christ followers are unaware of their potholes. And so they answer like Paul. I don't understand why I do what I do. I mean, I know I want to do good. I just somehow can't get to it. I just keep running to this. I don't understand why. And it's really, really easy. It's just you have potholes. And what's amazing is if you go back to this story in Esther, the question that we should be asking is, why would some guy want to bankroll a genocide? One verse. Verse 2. Look what it says. But Mordecai, new character in the story, Jewish man, would not kneel down or pay him honor. So some apparent reason, Mordecai decides not to Tebow and kneel down to show Haman honor. And because he does not kneel down to show Haman honor like every other person would, something happens within Haman. Look what it says. It continues on. It says these words. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Fascinating. And I I just think about this. Look what it says. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Why? One dude wouldn't kneel down. I don't want to just deal with this guy. I want to deal with all his people. Now hear me say this. I don't think any of you would bankroll or try to actually commit a genocide to wipe out a group of people. I don't think that. But I will say this. I do think, though, that every day 
people get close to your potholes and you say things, do things, and escape in a way that doesn't actually bring glory to God. It actually creates collateral damage for you and those around you. And this is why we have to be the kind of people who have the curiosity and the courage to get to what I call the thing beneath the thing. So thing is an acronym. And I'm going to teach you right now. You don't need to buy the book. I'm going to give it away right now. You can buy the book, help my kids go to college, but that's another story. But like, what I want you to understand is I want you to understand why you do what you do. My hope is that somehow when you and your spouse are fighting, that you would recognize it's not about what you're talking about. It's about something else. And that you'd have a moment where you'd step back and be like, babe, 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 babe. What's the thing beneath the thing? I wanted you to say that to one another and then be like, oh, don't, you, don't, don't play that book on me. Don't, don't you say that to me. No, 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 but I'm serious. What is underneath that? So here, here's what you have to understand. The T is triggers. And the T represents the potholes in our life. And the triggers are the setup that sets us off. So for Haman, it was the fact that one guy wouldn't kneel down. I have no idea from the Bible what Haman's life was like to the point where he would be so enraged and triggered because Mordecai didn't kneel down. I don't know if he was overlooked. I don't know if there was a bad relationship with his father. I don't know if he was always trying to prove himself. I don't know if he was searching for respect. I have no idea, but this one man's decision enraged him. You know what this is like. That that person at work minimizes your thoughts and ideas. When she talks underneath her breath as she walks away. When you get surprised with an assignment that you didn't know or see coming and you don't have margin in your day to actually complete it. And all of a sudden, what ends up happening within you? All of a sudden, this negative energy starts to kind of rise up. And for many of us, we get triggered and then we start to act out. My counselor will say, if you find yourself getting hysterical, it's most likely historical. If you find yourself like ramping up, whether in anger or fear or worry or anxiety, it's most likely historical. It's from some pain, some trauma, some abuse. And here's the problem. For many of us, we're just not curious. And I remember coming home one day and I had this moment where this one person minimized me in a conversation and I was fired up and I'm asking my wife for a little bit of spousal backup, a little bit of gossip where she could join me in my frustration towards this person. And you know what my wife says to me? Isn't God so kind? I'm like, what do you mean God's so kind? He did it again. He minimized me. He powered up. He just was a punk in this meeting. What do you mean God's so kind? And this is what she said. God's so kind because he keeps bringing people in your life who remind you of the real person who wounded you. And you haven't had the courageous curiosity to get to that, so your life is being held in check until you honor its truth. You know what I said to her? Get behind me, Satan. I didn't didn't say that. But but you know what I, I felt? I was like, why you gotta be so smart? But this is what often happens. We get triggered, and when we get triggered, we don't see it as an invitation for deeper healing. We see it as permission to go sinning. And we, we get all of this angst and all of this frustration and all of this inside of us, and because we don't have the courageous curiosity, we're gonna run to one of four places. And for many of us, we run to multiple places. 
The first place is, is the hideouts. And the hideouts are where you get triggered and it's the metaphorical places we go to escape our story. And truth be told, there are socially acceptable hideouts and there are socially unacceptable hideouts. I, I, I'm an addict. And when I get triggered, the first place I go, I've turned to again and again for 20 years has been work. There's a socially acceptable addiction. But I'm running from something and I'm trying to prove something. And if you, if you found yourself just running to food, running to work, binge watching Ted Lasso all in one day, like you, you, you can do this. And it's just socially acceptable. But basically all you're doing is running to something else. Or they're socially unacceptable. And I can go through a whole laundry list of that. But you know what this is? And we all in our life have socially acceptable and socially unacceptable hideouts. And this is biblical. Because what you'll see is you remember when Moses was on top of the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. And it's like covered in thunder and lightning and clouds. And the Hebrew people are all underneath. And it's like one person starts to touch their ear. And they're like, I got some gold. And they're so nervous going, is Moses going to come back? And another person touches their chest because I got some gold. And some person starts to touch their arms. I got some gold. And they start to think, you know what all the other nations would do? They would make an idol. And that's what they would do. They would, they would basically cast all their worry onto this golden calf, this counterfeit God. And so what do they do? They, they take all of their jewelry, they make this golden calf, and this is what they're doing. They're literally taking all of that fear that they don't think they can bring to God, and they're transferring it onto something else. We do this with food, we do this with sex, we do this with purchasing clothes, we do this every single day, and Amazon knows you do this. That's why they created the one-click button. And I'm telling you what, for many of us, we are running to all of these counterfeit gods. And we're okay with it. Until March 27th when we get our credit card bill. Or until one day we wake up and I'm like, I did it again. I ran to his arms or her arms. I did it again. I went and I bought stuff with money I didn't have. I did it again. I drank too much. I did it again. I just wanted to escape. And I'm just here to tell you, it's human. But it's a better way. There's a better way. For some of us, when we get triggered, we go to the second place. It's not to hideouts, but it's to insecurities. And this is the false stories we create about ourselves. And maybe for many of you, you know what this is like. You get triggered and all of a sudden, something happens where there's this old VHS. And if some of you are too young, you don't know what that is. They had a button where you could record, you could stop, you could play, you could fast forward, you could rewind. And when you fast forward, it would be like, or you rewind, it would do the same noise. And for some of us, we just have these tapes that are playing again and again. We get triggered, and it's like these lies that are spoken over us. You're so stupid. Who do you think you are? You'll never be as good as your sibling. <laughs> You're such a failure. You're a screw-up. What the hell are you thinking? I mean, I have these thoughts that go through my brain. I had these thoughts yesterday morning. I drove from the mountains in Phoenix where my family was. We had both our cars up in the mountains. I drove down straight to the airport. My flight was leaving at 5 a.m. So I drove from 1 a.m. to get to the airport in time. I get out after parking my car. I reach my hand in my pocket to lock the car and I pull out my wife's car key. Put that back in my pocket, look at my other one and then I have my key too. And I'm a, I hated all the thoughts that came through my head. You're so stupid. 
Nobody, nobody, nobody does this. You make these messes all the time. What the hell are you going to do now? I've said hell twice, but I'm just trying to be honest. That's literally what goes through my brain. And more worse words because of my childhood. And literally, like, it just, it just, like, is hitting me. And I, I, I sat there and I, I'm like, oh my goodness. So I land in O'Hare. I go to a UPS at O'Hare. I ask for overnight, but I didn't know they don't do overnight on the weekends, but they still call it overnight and they still charge you for overnight. But that's another story that got me triggered. But like, but I had this moment, right? Where I'm just having these tapes. And for some of you, you have these tapes. And in that moment, you just start to power down and you don't see that you were created in the image of God. What you see is the mess. And you see what somebody else has said from the pit of hell about you. And it just gives it permission to start to play again and again and again and again. And so we power down. For some of us, though, we power up in these moments. We feel like we're losing control of the situation. And so all of a sudden, I don't feel bad about myself, but I'm going to make you feel bad. And if you were a child of an alcoholic, you learned how to dance around the chaos of your family. And for some, some people in the moments where they're most insecure, they start being verbally abusive to the people that matter most. And that's really fun. And that was my childhood. And so why when I get triggered, I hear so many of those thoughts is because that's what I heard as a kid. For some of us, when we get triggered, it's the setup that sets us off. We don't go to hideout. We don't go to insecurity. We go to narratives. And narratives are the false stories we create about others. And this is where we intentionally or subconsciously look for what divides rather than actually unites. And this is what Twitter, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, talk radio, Facebook, they are making billions of dollars trying to perpetuate you to create false narratives and look for what divides rather than unites. And thanks be to God, Jesus was not like that. Thanks be to God that Jesus would go sit with a Samaritan woman. Thanks be to God that Jesus would be someone who looked to try and unite. But it will become harder and harder and harder for a sincere Christ follower in the days to come, I kid you not, to not take the bait. This is going to be bait. And it breaks my heart. Do I like wearing this? No. And I'm watching it. I'm watching it at school board meetings. I'm, watch, I'm, just watch, I'm watching it on Twitter. I'm watching us. And the problem is I just look back and go, oh, you got triggered. And instead of actually taking it to Christ, you took it out on somebody else. And I think Paul goes, oh, the good I want to do, I just don't do the thing I hate I do. And anybody who's ever verbally abused somebody else or lost their mind where it went viral on Twitter, I don't think they've ever been like, yeah, that felt good. That was great. That's exactly how I wanted it to go. I really wanted everybody else to see me being crazy. I don't think any, I think then all of a sudden they replay it and all of a sudden that shame storm comes and they're like, why? Why? I know why. You got triggered and you didn't see it as an invitation to do the harder work. You saw it as permission to go escape. But I'm here to tell you there's another way. 
And if you search the scriptures, you will find this way. And this way will lead you to actually wholeness and health and holiness. And it's G, it's grace. Now, oftentimes when we talk about grace, we're talking about the, the get out of hell card. That's the third time I've used the word hell, but a different reference point. But here's the, the part, is like we often think about this is me escaping this reality and going there and, 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 and getting away. But that's not how really the Bible only teaches grace. See, the way that the Bible teaches grace is that grace is going to find you, but secondly, that grace is going to find you out. And that grace is going to be relentless. Grace will be relentless to help you become everything God created you to be. John Wesley, he was kind of the founder of the, the, the Wesleyan tradition. And Wesley had three stages of grace. The first two stages, you all know, probably not the words, but they're harder words for, even for me to pronounce. But the third stage of grace was what he called sanctifying grace. And many of you who grew up in the 60s or 70s or 80s, there was a five, six, seven syllable word, sanctification, that many of us use. But somehow in the 90s and 2000s, it got put to the shelf. And sanctification is a beautiful word. It is the word that literally means the process, the spiritual process of God's power that actually is at work in us so that we can become whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And what I've come to realize is now when I get triggered whether I'm at the airport, whether when someone cuts me off, whether I'm in a meeting, whether when somebody says something on Twitter, I recognize I have some potential unhealthy escapes. Or it can be an invitation to say, God, what are you doing? And what in my life do you want to actually help make whole and holy? So here's what I want you to think about. Two questions, two questions, two questions. First one is this, what triggers you? If you're married, you should talk about this. What triggers you? What triggers you? And if you don't know the answer, ask your spouse, because she'll tell you. <laughs> He'll tell you. Oh, you know what makes you, what triggers you? When you have not eaten, get hangry. You know what triggers you? Is when you feel afraid. You know what triggers you when you get surprised? You know what triggers you is when somebody cuts you off on the 90. You know what triggers you when you think you'll be late? Well, you know what triggers you what, when you think somebody's going to think less of you? And you've got to be able to identify that. Because if you don't identify it, then you're missing out on the invitation for God's sanctifying grace. But the second, the second piece is you've got to begin to then ask yourself, well, if this triggers me when I feel surprised, where do I go? Where do I go when I feel surprised? For some of us, we, we go to a hideout. We go to escape. For some of us, when we feel surprised, we go to insecurity. And this is the tape that plays over and over and over. For some of us, when we feel surprised, we start to create a, a story about somebody else. My friends, I'm telling you, if you can begin to clearly identify, that triggered me, and just step back for a moment. That triggered me. What's underneath that? What's underneath that? And where do I feel this energy to go? And for many of us, when we were in high school, we went to certain places. And then when we got into college, we kind of went to similar places. And the problem is, we've actually never kind of given ourselves a healthy escape. And so when we get triggered, we just keep into those patterns. Or in addiction language, we just keep relapsing. And you've got to understand that every time you react, you're just reenacting the past. 
But when you invite God's sanctifying grace in and you can see what triggers you and where you go, you give yourself the best chance to respond. I don't think any of us want a life where we just do things that we don't understand. I think every one of us who calls Four City Church home, I think every one of us who goes deep with Jesus, every one of us, we want to go, I see the good and I'm chasing the good. I'm not doing the things I hate. But this is where it's going to require work. Work on your point, on your part to be aware. Why do I do what I do? And what does the scriptures say to do about it? And when you begin to go through this, identifying the triggers, identifying where you go, and then choosing to say, I'm actually going to invite grace into this. I'm going to tile a pastor. I'm going to talk about it with a counselor. I'm going to invite my spouse. I'm going to invite my, my small group into this. I kid you not, in weeks and months and seasons to come, you will be making choices that lead to victory, not to failure. And how many of you really just go, man, that, that's, that's deep down what I want. You've got to understand what triggers you and where you go. I want to, I want to read this over you. And I, I hate this whole book stuff stuff. I, I really do. All I want to do is pastor people. All I want to do is like write and, and teach and help people. And I'm not even sure I'm that good at it. But truth be told, like, I just want people to understand there's a better way. And, and I wrote this in my journal a few years back. And I just feel like this morning, I was just coming here and I just felt like, man, I, I just need to read this over you because I think this is how some of you are if you can relate to me. And then we'll, we'll lead with the song. We are all mysterious and wild. A collection of sounds and stories inscribed over the years. We, Four City Church, are all made up of hopes, fears, and desires. We are all products of the messages of love and shame we've received. We are all full of energy, excitement, and oh so many feels. It's who I am. It's who you are. Sacred and holy. The weight of feeling not enough and way too much, often in the very same breath. Every room you walk into, you bring this, your whole self. All of you. Yet most of the time, you and I are unable to locate and identify what is churning within. Like shadows that follow us, our outward attitudes and actions reflect the steps our internal world set. We have become functional yet disconnected, efficient yet unaware. Our bodies carry both truths and lies, every narrative we've ever been subjected to. Fiction as well as nonfiction. The body knows it holds, it controls all of us until we honor its whole truth. And my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this is a safe space for you to bring your whole truth. The trauma, the abuse, the struggle, the pain, to bring that and allow God's goodness and God's grace to begin to make you whole, holy, and spiritually healthy so that you can see a victory. Amen? Amen. Let me say a prayer, and then James is going to lead us in a beautiful, beautiful song. God, thank you for who you are, for never giving up on us, even when I make decisions that bewilder my family, that bewilder others. You still come running after us, offering an invitation for a life that's more whole and holy and healthy. And God, I'm just praying right now that every one of us would be willing to do our work, 
We wouldn't go through life passively. I don't understand why I do what I do, but we would get curious. We'd be filled with your courage to get after the thing beneath the thing. Help us, Lord. Make this a church that is whole and holy, sanctified by what your son did on the cross, what he did three days later, and what grace offers us. God, I am praying. I'm praying for those who just feel like the enemy just continues to take over. Fear in the past continues to hold their life in check. God, I'm praying right now that there would be a victory, a victory in this house that people would see it a better way, a better way that your spirit would just move in this time. Bless them, Father. Keep them. Be gracious to them. Shine your face upon them. Grant them peace and may they experience victory in you and all God's people said, Amen. You've been listening to Steve Carter with a message, The Thing Beneath the Thing on the Forest City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening.